This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. Hey, listeners. So uh, I realized that since we've last spoken to you, so much shit has happened that there, there's just no way to keep up, with, keep up with it all. So I've got headlines and Henry's got headlines and we're going to hit you with stuff that we think is important. But also, I, I feel like we got to be topical and on top of these things. So for the next couple of minutes, I'm going to do uh, kind of a, a new segment that may recur called uh, Quick Takes on Tons of Shit. So uh, because that's what's been going on. Tons of shit. Mostly bad shit. Number one, I got three this time. Number one, John Bolton, National Security Advisor. Oh, we're going to talk more about this, guys. Uh, beyond having the worst mustache, which should immediately uh, make him, uh, you know, uh, un- unappliable for any job, or, or <laughs> you know, <laughs> he basically with that mustache, besides '70s porn star, he, he should be ineligible for any job. Uh, this is a genuinely dangerous man. This is a man who has played with intelligence in the past, has sold the American people on false evidence that led us into Iraq, and then he didn't even have the, the, the humility to admit that Iraq was a mistake. This guy wants war with Iraq, and he got it. Well, now, guys, he wants war with Iran, and he'll get it. All right, He'll push Trump, and he'll get it, and he wants war with North Korea, and he might get that too. That one may go nuclear. Uh, Personnel is policy. The people that you put in charge of advising you are extraordinarily important. Now, the president doesn't have to listen to them, and he's proven that he won't listen to people and he'll do his own thing. But he replaced McMaster, who told him no on a few occasions, and he replaced Tillerson, who told him no on a few occasions, and he's given us Pompeo, who's a yes man, and Bolton, who's a war hawk, probably yes man. And the reality is, whereas Pompeo at Secretary of State has to be Uh, Looked at by the Senate and approved by the Senate, Bolton does not. The National Security Advisor is probably the most important figure besides the President of the United States on foreign policy. And yet, because it's an executive and not a cabinet position, he doesn't even have to get looked at by the Senate. So this warmonger is going to be our new National Security Advisor. Number two, a little bit of better news. Uh, Trump said uh, a week ago that he's going to be getting out of Syria like kind of fast. I'm pretty sure that's the exact quote. Uh, beyond the uh, wildly coarse rhetoric and unsophistication of the guy's language, uh, I think this is a good thing. Am I convinced that it will actually happen, especially in light of yesterday's, as we're recording this, chemical attack uh, in Syria, which is now at least the third reported chemical attack. Some people say at least dozens of chlorine gas attacks. Nevertheless, Trump has told the Pentagon that we're getting out of Syria like real soon. And he is going to get a bipartisan array of attacks on this. He's going to get attacked by the liberal interventionists. I'm thinking the Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer wing of the Democratic Party. And he's going to get it from the right wing hawks, Tom Cotton and the neocons who want more war, more occupation and forever for the United States military to occupy Syria. I wrote an article this week that hopefully should publish later this week. Basically, it's called Mr. President, Go With Your Instincts. And I have to hold my nose when I write it. I have to take a big gulp and say, 
I may not like the policy of this president. I may not like the personality of this president. But when he is right and when his instincts are right, like they are on Syria in terms of getting out, it seems, we need to tell him that and we need to support him. And it has to have nothing to do with politics. So it doesn't matter whether I voted for the man. It doesn't matter whether I think he's a, a, a good president overall. What I think is when he's right and he's right about getting us out of the Syria trap before it's too late. We should back him. And, and people on both sides of the aisle should back him. And if you're a libertarian Republican, you should back him. And if you're a left-wing Democrat who wants to see peace in the Middle East, then you should back him. You've got to find common ground. Finally, the dead protesters in Gaza. I've lost count, Henry, of how many uh, Palestinian protesters on the border of Gaza, which is a prison, mind you. It is probably the largest open-air prison in the world under blockade by the Israelis. The most densely populated strip of land on Earth, almost everyone is on some sort of food uh, or, or health care aid in the refugee camps. They're protesting for their right to go back to the homes they were expelled from in 1948. Here's the reality. They ain't getting back in those homes. I'm sympathetic to the Palestinians, but I don't think they're going to get their, their, their homes back, if they even exist anymore. But what I think Israel does need to do is recognize the legitimate gripes of these people and offer some sort of settlement, whether it's reparations uh, or, or an opening of the Gaza prison or a, uh, a larger amount of territory around Jerusalem. Something has to be given to these Palestinians. They will not stop protesting. Mostly their protests have been peaceful. Some reports say that there's been shots fired on both ends. What we know is this, lopsided casualties. Always lopsided casualties. Always, always. Anytime Palestinians square off against the Israelis, you can bet that there will be 10 dead Palestinians for every one dead Israeli. And it's usually 10 dead Palestinian civilians for one or less dead Israeli soldiers. This does not mean that I think Israel should be wiped off the map. I don't. This does not mean I don't th that I think Israel shouldn't provide for its own security. I do. But I have to also tell you that it's very distressing what's happening in Gaza. All right, I think I'm over my five minutes, although I didn't set a time on it. So that's quick takes on tons of shit for this week. I, uh, like you, I, I think the idea of getting out of Syria is probably a good one. But the, given what's going on in Gaza right now, given what's happening um, in Turkey, how do we do that without just resigning the Kurds to oblivion? So that's a great question, Henry. And I think... Man, we should probably almost do a, a session on the Kurds at some point. I agree. Uh, uh, let, let me say this. I, I, I'm of two minds about this issue, the head and the heart. My heart is with the Kurds, always has been. Feels terrible for them, thinks they got a raw deal at the end of the First World War. Think we talk a good game about popular sovereignty, but then we have this stateless nation stuck between four countries, right? Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and Syria. My head says... There's nothing the United States military can do short of all-out regional war to protect them. Um, there are some options out there, a no-fly zone over the Syrian, uh, the Kurdish-occupied section of Syria. There's a lot of risks involved in that, too. What do we do if the Russians break through our no-fly zone? Do we shoot down a Russian jet and take a chance of war? These are the kind of questions we have to think about. So I really like that you brought that up because th here's the truth. Heart and head are sometimes going to be divergent from one another in foreign policy. The prudent practitioner, the serious practitioner of foreign policy, I think, has to weigh the risk-reward uh, calculus. And I'm not sure that when it comes to the Kurds, the risk of long-term U.S. involvement is worth, uh, is worth the reward, which is probably limited.
That being said, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not certain that we can't do anything with the Kurds, so we need to talk more about that. But uh, it's a sad state of affairs for the Middle East Kurds. Do you think, in my last thought on this, do you think that a quick withdrawal on our part in Syria, let's say six months or less, would or wouldn't leave a vacuum for ISIS to reform? I think that it could conceivably leave some level of a vacuum, but for the most part, I think the ISIS caliphate in terms of holding land is probably a thing of the past. Why do I say that? Not because I'm an optimist. I'm a known pessimist, just ask my wife. But because ISIS's territory in eastern Syria and western Iraq is now surrounded on all sides by hostile actors. Turkey's not interested in them. Assad's regime and Russia certainly don't want them coming back. The Kurds don't want them coming back. And neither does the now kind of reinforced Iraqi army and Iraqi popular mobilization forces. Uh, maybe the United States was needed to more quickly stamp out the caliphate, but I think there's enough uh, force on the ground now to ensure that ISIS doesn't return, at least not as a land-holding major ground power. I think the ideology is going to stick around. I think that the, the transnational terror attacks will continue. But uh, I don't think it's either the United States' place to stay in eastern Syria, because remember, we occupy one-third of Syria right now. We are the proud owners of one-third of Syria, and, and that's frightening, because that means that we're responsible for the hopes, the dreams, the worries, the stability of all those people. And uh, I've seen how this movie, and you've seen it too, how this, how this has played out before in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we have a very poor track record. So uh, do I think ISIS will try to fill the vacuum? Yeah, I do. Do I think they'll be successful in reestablishing a ground caliphate? I don't. But I could be wrong, and that's dangerous, and so I'll admit that. All right, well, we'll keep an eye on that and come back to that a little bit later. Yeah, it's a great debate, though, man. I'm really glad you brought that up. Awesome debate. All right, so uh, we're moving along to uh, kind of good subject, kind of bad subject, and I'm I'm not going to title it. I'm just going to start reading what I've – the dialogue I have here. Um. There are some promises we believe come with being Americans, the American dream, the American opportunity. It's what we're told from the beginning of our lives, that with hard work and dedication, a person of no no or modest means can rise the ranks of our society and create something from nothing. Given the pervasive income inequality our country currently suffers from, it is hard to take a look for opportunities, especially for people of modest means. So it would be nice during this time if the military could set a different example, could demonstrate an example of what hard work and dedication could get someone here in the United States. So I want to talk about a man named Hector Barajas. Hector was a little boy when he came to the U.S. I believe he was six, and as a result, he never received a green card or citizenship. He later enlisted in the Army, which provided him with a path to, to becoming a citizen. He served from 1995 to 2001 in the 82nd Airborne. A while later, Hector was arrested, and this was after his, he was uh, honorably discharged. He was arrested for shooting at an occupied car, and after two years in prison, Hector was deported. Hector found himself in a country which he did not call home, nor did he defend it with his life like the U.S., due to the fact that green card holders can be deported following criminal proceedings. Now, to me, the idea that his time in the U.S. was ended because of a crime he committed doesn't pass the common sense test. American citizens don't lose their eligibility to be Americans if they commit a crime. They're supposed to pay for their crimes and go on with their lives. But green card holders don't get that chance in this instance. If they break a law, sometimes even a very insignificant one, 
they can be deported. But get this, the VA is still bound by law to assist in the burial of veterans, even those living abroad. So while they have no legal right to be in this country, the country they defended, mind you, they can have their bodies uh, brought back because of VA burial benefits. Oh, my God. So, and, and it's a story we've seen more and more during the Trump administration, but it also happened under former presidents as well. The Obama administration deported veterans, although we don't have specific numbers for, um, for his time in office. But coming back to Hector, Hector did something extraordinary after he was deported to Mexico. Most people would be understanding if somebody in Hector's shoes had to focus entirely on themselves. Hector didn't speak Spanish, and he didn't know anybody in Mexico. But even still, he founded a place which today is called the Deported Veterans Support House. My guess is that Hector founded it because he wished something like that existed when he first arrived there in 2004. I like to think it's a south-of-the-border USO. It gives deported veterans a home if they need one, a bite to eat, a, a place to work on filing paperwork to return to the U.S., um, it has even become a place where these veterans can meet with their congressional representatives, and they actually did, and try to advocate for their return to the U.S. But this place isn't really the USO. The men and women who come here generally have no other place to call home. Now we get to the, the better part of the story. Guess who finally gets to come home? Hector. California Governor Jerry Brown has pardoned Hector for his earlier offenses, and he will be able to become a U.S. citizen. Hector, I hope you get the chance to hear this. I can't tell you how excited I am you get to come home and that they can't make you leave again. However, the next part of the story is my favorite part. Hector is planning to commute between Tijuana and Compton, where he's from, for at least a year following his return home ensuring that the Deported Veterans Support House keeps running smoothly for the many other deported veterans that still need its assistance. Hector, despite all he's been through, despite all that weighed on him and his family, still wants to make sure that all his brothers and sisters in arms come home. So, if any of you have a chance, send him a message on Facebook or Twitter. Tell him how awesome it is that he gets to come home, and tell him how awesome it is you consider the work that he's doing. Danny and I'll continue discussing this topic until it stops being newsworthy. I have no doubt that more veterans are going to be deported, despite the rhetoric from the Trump administration about all the support they provide veterans, as clearly it isn't to all veterans. That's such a great, such a great story, and also so demoralizing that it's even come to this. Um, thankfully, he's coming back, and and what an inspiring guy. Talk about being a soldier for life. You know, the Army always talks about that. In fact, I think there's a program now, right, Henry? It's called, like, Soldier for Life. Something like idea. that, yeah, yeah. You know, the Marines have always said that, right? Once a Marine, always a Marine. Well, the Army's starting to say it, too. I mean, continuing to serve when out of uniform, that's what Hector's doing. And, and it's incredibly admirable. It is. It is. So here's the deal, everybody. Combat veterans come home with a variety of military-related illnesses or injuries, especially psychological injuries. PTSD, traumatic brain injuries, and other mental conditions are common among deployed troops. There's also the likelihood of physical injuries caused both directly or indirectly by military service. To me, the first few years following military service are the hardest. Transitioning to both new non-military housing, finding a job, especially if a service member is dealing with harsh symptoms of their injuries. This is the same for all veterans of all walks of life. 
I uh, recently read through the majority of uh, a report from the ACLU on deported veterans, the link for which is in our show notes. Um, for a much clearer understanding of this, please take a look at uh, please take a look at that report. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to read through that entire report because I want to see how common this is. Our president constantly says things like, "Nobody loves the military more than me. Nobody knows the military more than me. No one's a better strategist than me." He says those things all the time. He definitely uses the military as a, in the literal sense, for a parade coming up in November, but just as a cheerleader for the military. Well, if that's the case, then it has to be all veterans. And you know what? Veterans, like you said, veterans get sick. Yep. Veterans have mental turmoil. I do. Some of them commit crimes. Who hasn't, right? I mean, who, if they were held responsible for every single action of their life, hasn't ever been in the position where they could have potentially been arrested? If you've only known this country and you served it with honor, making a mistake shouldn't end your ability to live in the country you fought for. And uh, I think we both agree about that. I'm really glad you brought up this story. But uh, keep your eyes out, uh, listeners, and your ears open because uh, we want to highlight as many of these stories as possible. And, and I know Henry will continue to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So well, welcome home, Hector. Uh, last, last thing on that. Yeah, welcome home, brother. Well, my first, uh, it's so funny. Like, I wonder if the listeners have figured out how each of us has our own, you know, our own interests that we tend to do our articles on and tend to focus our headlines on. I think it's a really good way that we play off each other. So mine, uh, my first one is a, a dorky one about foreign policy, as always. Headline was, the Pentagon's spending increase is more than Russia's entire military budget. Hmm. That's from March 27th. Why did I choose this article? Well, because if you listen to Pentagon spokespeople, if you listen to neoconservatives or neoliberals in the House and Senate, you would believe that the Russian bear has the most powerful military in the world, and the United States and Europe have no chance of stopping them unless we double or triple our military budget. I mean, you'd be led to believe that. Listen to the alarmist reporting on the Baltics, on the Crimea, on the Ukraine. But is that true? Yes, Russia has an impressive military and some 1,500 or more nuclear weapons. But the combined budget for the Russian armed forces this last year was $46 billion. That's a lot of money. Except the thing is, the president just increased the spending for this year $61 billion more than was spent last year. So that means that the increase, the one-year increase in the United States' military budget is larger by $15 billion than the entire Kremlin budget. Another way to look at it is that the U.S. military budget is 14 times larger than the Russians. And you're going to tell me that there aren't any weaknesses that we can exploit in Russia? You're going to tell me that Russia really believes it could conquer Western Europe as we're led to believe? How is that possible? Even if they do have more tanks than us, which they inevitably do. Even if they do have more foot soldiers than the Germans, which they inevitably do. I bet you they don't have the same level of technological proficiency, the same level of spending that gives us power on land, sea, air, and cyber as we do. Leaving aside our European allies. Now, the reason I keep bringing this up is I hate alarmism. I want the United States military to be prepared. I want it to be well-funded. I want its veterans to be taken care of. 
I think $716 billion is enough. I think it's probably too much. Listen to what Secretary of Defense Mattis said, though, in the same article. He said, today we received the largest military budget in history, which he likes, reversing many years of decline and unpredictable funding. I think that's alarmist, too. He's happy about getting the largest military budget, but then he has to tell us that we've had decades of decline, many years of decline. Have we, though? Nope. We still spend 14 times more than the Russians. Our military budget is more than, get ready, the combined budgets of China, Russia, Britain, Japan, Saudi Arabia, India, France, all combined. Those are the next, what, eight powers? Now, Russia and China are, yeah, maybe we'll say adversaries, maybe we'll say competitors. But you notice something about the other six names on that list? They're American allies, or at least partners. Britain, France, those countries are obligated by treaty to fight with us. Japan, obligated by a mutual defense treaty. Saudi Arabia probably uh, has more American weapons than any other country on the planet because we sold them to them. And India is generally considered an American partner who we have a nuclear deal with. Here's what I'm saying. Watch the Russians. Pay attention to the Russians. Call them out when they do something wrong. Don't just stand aside and let them, you know, walk all over the United States and foreign policy. But let's be realistic about the relative strength of the two sides. To my knowledge, Russia has an aircraft carrier. The United States has nearly a dozen. Let's keep all that in mind when we balance the relative merits of our two militaries. And let's not get alarmist and throw more and more military might into Eastern Europe, which could potentially cause an even greater conflagration, which is what I fear. Let's be realistic. So I, I recently got introduced to uh, Mac Thornberry, uh, head of the House Senate Armed Committee, and it, it seems like that he has a little impromptu speech anytime military budgeting comes around about exactly all the points you're hitting. You know that our military was at it. You know is at its weakest point during the Obama years. That we need more and more and more, which patently false but it but it's a it's it's a little hat that they all wear when it comes to budget time do, do they think that we won't give enough money if they don't lie to us like that yeah that's a good question I, perhaps i mean conjuring up threats is the best way to get funding if i'm the army or if i'm the navy if i work for the pentagon I'm going to make it seem like there are extraordinary threats out there so that I get as much of the budget as possible so that I can be as prepared to fight as possible. It's understandable why they would do that. The question becomes, at what point does civilian oversight have to step in and sort of parse out what's a real threat from what is a minor threat? And, and, and I think you use the word lie, and it's, it's a disturbing term, but all too often I think it's true. Someone is being unfair. Someone is being you know, other than truthful, because if we're spending 14 times more than the Russians, how much more does it take before we consider ourselves secure? Absolutely. Does security mean that we have to control every single region of the planet, that our military has to be able to project force in, in totality to any region of the planet? No other country has goals like that. The military is for defense. It's for defense and the protection of U.S. interests. The thing is, you've got to define those somewhat narrowly. Our interests can't be everything and everywhere. If it is, we're going to start spending over a trillion dollars a year on the military. And you know what? Little prediction here. Five, ten years from now, that's actually how much we're going to spend. 
don't be surprised when we hit a trillion dollars. I'm kind of I wonder how many schools that right could now. build. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, we're, get, we're getting there. How many schools, right? How much food? How much health care? Uh, everything is a trade-off. And uh, this is coming from two military men. We don't want to see a weak army. We don't want to see a weak military. We want to see a smart military that uses its funds wisely and recognizes that true power, true national power is smart power, soft power, our technology, the strength of our economy, the well-being of our people. That's what draws people to us, not just our military might. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so there's a there's a topic I've been wanting to cover for a while, and I'm I'm just now getting to it, but it, it it's really really aggravating me. This is a a story about uh, some veterans being imprisoned in Kuwait from uh, Adam Linehan at Task and Purpose. Now the the, the stories I've read so far involve t- these veterans being falsely charged, usually for a drug offense of some kind, and being imprisoned um, in Kuwait. All of them are contractors who have worked for various various defense firms that are working there in and around Kuwait City and the few U.S. camps we still have there in country. I was surprised to find out that contractors have zero legal rights, like soldiers do under a status of forces agreement. So in the event that a U.S. contractor comes under legal trouble in a foreign country or gets captured, I didn't write that in here, but I was just thinking about that, they have no additional protections from our government. Now, the imprisoned veterans in Kuwait generally have a similar story that begins their legal troubles, where the police there arrive to search their residence, and then they are arrested for having some form of contraband. But usually the person who's arrested has no knowledge about the contraband. And when it comes to later, it's, it's like they just make up something on the spot. Very little information is shared with the contractor during this process, and after a series of short and charged legal proceedings where they don't provide an interpreter, the contractor is sentenced to a long stint in prison, or sometimes death. So far, the U.S. Embassy has done very little to assist the contractors. I would assume their hands are tied by the host country's laws, but clearly there are poor conditions in these prisons, and some of these guys are being repeatedly beaten. So we, we, we need to do something. The embassy needs to get off its ass. But again, I, I don't know what they're legally allowed to do. Now, um, in Kuwait, given the level of corruption within their criminal justice circles, it's possible that evidence was planted. And there's quite a bit of evidence to demonstrate that Kuwaiti, Kuwaitis are deliberately going after minorities and people of color. All the current remaining eight contractors that Task and Purpose could track down at Kuwait Central Prison were African-American. And there was also a gay couple who had been in prison, but they have since been released. Muslims believe being gay is a sin. And when that's added to a strong cultural prejudice against black people, it creates a horrible situation for foreigners who don't know the laws or dealing with the police who decide that they want to make something up on you. It's certainly possible that some of the contractors got arrested legitimately, but under Kuwait's guilty until found innocent system, I have my doubts that these contractors were arrested and tried under reasonable circumstances. So uh, please check out Adam's piece of task and purpose. I've listed it in the show notes. It is much, much longer and more informative, and uh, we'll be coming back to the subject as we get more information. Yeah, I just want to say one thing about Kuwait, and tell me if you remember this, Henry, but... 
it says something when a lot of our purported allies like Kuwait and the Middle East are sort of embarrassed to have us in their country. They're sort of uneasy that we're there, even though they asked us to be there for cultural reasons, for religious reasons. So this is what I remember about Kuwait is my welcome there. I land in Kuwait in early October 2006. We're going to spend about three weeks training there before we move into Baghdad and fight that horrific civil war. Land in Kuwait City, which is a major metropolis. looks like Vegas from the sky. You remember that? Yep. yep and uh, first thing they did was put us on the buses with closed curtains, drawn curtains, as we drove down the highway to, I can't remember which camp, Camp Virginia or wherever we went to. They had those there because they didn't want the Kuwaiti people to have to see that there are, you know, Anglo-Americans in their country, uh, Christians going off to fight in Iraq. They actually closed the curtains. I mean, everyone knew, everyone in Kuwait knew that we had bases, but our bases are all out in the desert, far from the metropolis. And and we literally had closed curtains. They drew the curtains uh, to, to save the people the embarrassment of seeing us. I mean, it speaks to the problematic nature of America's military deployments in the Middle East and some of the contradictions at the root of these regimes that we're supposedly allied with. No, I, uh, I always used to ask myself questions about the curtains. I figured it was something kind of like that. I didn't think about the, the pride factor though. Um, was dealing with people in Iraq. It was the, it was the same thing is that, you know, we'll agree to certain things, but certain parameters of it need to be kind of shadowed and curtained a little bit for reasons that they would never really articulate. And we finally just, I think they're embarrassed. And that's, then that's all it was. It was just a cultural yeah. thing. It's, it's, it's shocking. And so these contractors and the racial and uh, religious components of it's very, very d- disturbing. So let's follow up on this topic and, uh, and sort of track these cases. I think it's really great that you brought it up. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, Analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read. And remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.